0: Welcome to The Convex Conversation with me, broadcaster Helen Fospero. This week's guest is a well-known and accomplished journalist who's broadcast live from the front line in Afghanistan and Iraq, been a trusted presenter for BBC News, fronted powerful documentaries and not been afraid to get her dancing shoes on for Strictly. I'm talking about Kate Silverton, who over the last few years has returned her academic roots in psychology to train as a child therapist. Kate, who has two young children herself, has been working closely with the Princess of Wales on her Shaping Us campaign, focused on the importance of our children's early years, which Her Royal Highness launched a few weeks ago. The campaign is fundamentally about shining a spotlight on the critical importance of early childhood
1: and how it shapes the adults we become. During this time, we
0: lay the foundations and building blocks for life. It is when we learn to understand ourselves, understand others and understand the world in which we live. She's also written best-selling book There's no such thing as naughty, a groundbreaking approach to parenting under fives. And right now, it's supposed to have her head firmly down writing the next one in between her clinical work. Kate, I know you're up against it. I feel really guilty for distracting. How is it going? Well, it's actually lovely to speak to you.
1: It's nice to have a bit of a girly catch up, to be honest with you, in the midst of going through the first draft. It's a welcome respite, but I'm juggling at the moment. And apologies if you can hear a dog. That's not my dog. That's next door neighbours. We're all at home, aren't we? Trying to sort of juggle. I've got building work one side and a dog barking the other. So you are my beautiful respite this morning. It's lovely to see you and to chat.
0: And you're in your sanctuary because you're in your garden in the office with the most striking image of a lion behind you. I think that's a David Yarrow print, isn't it? It's beautiful. It is. It is. I got that at a Tusk. You're obviously a friend to Tusk and your listeners will know
1: about the organisation. And it's an organisation I've supported for many, many years. And it was at an event and my husband bought it for me as an anniversary present.
0: Is that your little sanctuary in the garden when you've got to write and focus?
1: Yeah, we, we live in London. So the garden is literally a postage stamp size, but I've made it as beautiful as I possibly can. And this is my haven. It takes me sort of two seconds to get a, to commute in the morning when I come over, having dropped the kids off at school. And then I sit in here and I've got lots of plants around me and beautiful things that mostly sort of African. And then I've just got tons and tons and tons of books on mental health and neuroscience. I'm looking at them now and all my therapy books. And you can also see behind me lots of toys and things. So these are the sort of things that I take into the school where I volunteer as a therapist and uh, work with the children. So yeah, lots of sort of children's toys around me as well. So it's a
0: nice eclectic mix. People know you from a very successful high profile TV career. What made you give much of that up and train as a child therapist? My
1: academic background is in child psychology, and I've always had a fascination with how our brains work and operate. Really, when I became a parent, I'd done a lot of personal psychotherapy, and I became a parent, and having that support and being able to ask questions and like all of us do, want to sort of get the parenting bit right as much as we can. And I've been working as a volunteer with wonderful charities, just because of my natural interest, but charities. So as well as Tusk on the conservation side, I work with charities like Place to Be, which the princess is also, she's a royal patron for, and also the Anna Freud Centre, which is an incredible organisation supporting children and families. And everything that I was learning and all the people, and you'll know, you know, with a natural curiosity, it's always, you know, I'd be picking up the phone to sort of Dr. Bruce Perry, this very eminent neuroscientist and psychiatrist in the United States and people like Gabor Maté and attending conferences and everything I was learning blew me away. So, my own personal experience, what I was seeing with my children, and then sort of scaffolded by this incredible neuroscience, the science of the brain and the nervous system. It blew me away because everything fell into place. I understood myself, I understood my children, and you just think, everyone needs to know this. So that's where the book came in. But the actual training was really, I suppose, something that I felt called to do. I do mean that in a spiritual sense, really. It felt a natural calling. And maybe I'd always had it, but I'd obviously sort of gone off and done so many other different things. I'm a bit of a believer in life that we can live it in sort of acts, as it were. So you have the first act, which was the journalism and the broadcasting and all the wonderful stuff. Then you have a bit of an interval. And in my interval, I was still quite busy going off to do my training. And then I feel like I'm in the second act now. And it's a wonderful way of looking at life. I do think we should be walking towards what brings us joy and that's what i suppose my heart felt called to do that's what brought me joy It allowed me to be with my children more which i was very mindful of i didn't want to be going off and reporting from war zones and spending all hours in the newsroom i'd worked very hard when i was younger and when i became a mom i was i was mindful of it i also physically couldn't do it all uh, a bit especially being an older mom so Long answer to your question, really, but I suppose in short, I would say I'd put a lot of thought into what I wanted and what I felt my family needed from me, as well as just feeling very called to the work of helping others as well. I'm blissfully happy in terms of the work that I'm doing. It's so rich and rewarding, and I haven't lost my journalism hat. I'm still in that in as much as I'm writing the books and sort of conveying all this information in the most accessible way that I can. So it just feels very fulfilling and right. Does that answer the it <laughs> answer gigantic, question? It certainly does answer the No,
0: it's a beautiful answer, Kate. I think once a journalist, always a journalist, and I'm sure when you're doing your work, your journalism background is actually very useful. I'd like to ask a bit about what kind of work you do now, how you found that journey, and do you have to look and analyse your own life and your own childhood as part of the process when you are training to become a child therapist? Yes, absolutely. It's a prerequisite of the training I'd
1: already done about 200 years of psychotherapy, so <laughs> I was in quite a good place. <laughs> and I think that's probably why you start making decisions. In fact, I was speaking to a very dear friend this morning who works in our industry, so I won't name her, but I was sort of saying to her, you know, when you do the work, you start making choices that really serve you rather than what you think you should be doing. So when you do start your training to become a child therapist or any form of therapy, you have to do your own work as well. I'm working very deeply with clients now, in terms of my child clients, and I work in a very trauma-informed way, so I work pretty much as a complex case therapist in the work that I'm doing, and I know that I'm able to do that because of the personal work that I've done. That sort of, I suppose, cements how I feel in my space, in what I'm doing now, that the work that I did is now helping to sort of support others. When you are a therapist, you also still have to have supervision. So it's a very good, I mean, I always think every career, especially if you're in education and Lord knows all the challenges that a lot of teachers face, that it's really wonderful to be able to check in with a supervisor and have that 360 of I did this and then I did that and it felt like this. So it's a very interesting profession in as much as you are held because you're holding a lot of stuff. You know, you're, you're holding a lot of trauma in many cases with, with some young children. And so it's a very supported career in, in that respect. But as I say, I think because I'd spent so many years doing my own work, as we say, that that has been very helpful.
0: I wonder if we should all do that, Kate. I've never done anything like that. And it makes me think I would like to perhaps unravel a bit more of who I am and why I'm who I am and understand me a bit more. I love that you've said that. I genuinely think everyone
1: would benefit if there's any resistance, and I'm not speaking for you. Obviously, it'd be lovely to hear your, your thing. But I think some people can often find that in therapy, they think, I'd like to, but I don't know what I'm going to uncover. And there's a lovely expression of where we think we're going to walk into a cave full of monsters you know, like, well, oh, why do we need to go into the past? And, well, what's the point of that? You know, it's not going to be nice and I don't want to go there and it might be a bit scary and who needs to do that? You're only, you know, suck it up, you know, sort of stiff up a lip and all the rest of it, just move on. And all these things that we can tell ourselves to not do it. And actually what I say to people is when you do your work and undertake the journey of personal therapy, you end up with a cave that's full of the richest jewels that you could possibly imagine and I think that very often we can be living a life in black and white and we get by and we don't question and we take one foot and put it in front of the other. And actually for me, undertaking my own journey has allowed me to live a life in true multicolour. And that's the only way that I can really describe it. So I think everyone should. I really do. And even just because a lot of the time, I mean, I think the first time I walked into therapy and not the very I mean, one of the first few weeks, and we talked about my tortoise dying when I was 11, you know, you kind of go... Really? But there's all these little layers. We think of therapy and I it's often described as like an onion or I think of it as a flower with all these petals. And you'll go in and each week it might just be that the building work next door is really annoying and I can't concentrate and it's this and it's this. And you can take that and you think, oh, it's just, this is really, I mean, this is not, I don't do that anymore, but because, you know, that's in the early stages. But you can bring stuff that you think, oh, I couldn't share that with anybody else. That just sounds ridiculous. You know how, listen to me sort of, but you start to take away all those other petals, the outside, and then you get to the heart of who you truly are. And that's where it gets really, really beautiful and really interesting. And you do start living life as a very authentic person who's at peace and doesn't feel the need to serve or do or be anything other than what your heart tells you to do. So I think that is the gift of therapy. And I certainly think for children, if there's any parents listening, that the children are best served by having, and there's, there's too few of us at the moment, so I'd do a call to arms for more people to train. But for children, we can really help children very quickly. There is no issue I don't believe that cannot be resolved and I say that knowing and understanding complex trauma and I think we really could serve our children and the future adult that they'll become in the same way that we'd go to the GP if we had a broken ankle or even just a sprained ankle that we serve our children well. By seeking help, there's no value judgment. If a parent says my child is struggling, there's no value judgment in judging the parent. It's just like, okay, how can I help? And it's wonderful when you see, when I have parents who reach out to me and say, what did you do? They've just completely transformed and the ticker has gone and this is gone and they're confident and they're speaking in school and you just go, yeah, that's it. And it can happen very, very quickly. And it's a wonderful process to see and to see the ripple effect on families and teaching staff for whom the life becomes a lot easier for that child and and those around them.
0: It must be so rewarding, Kate, to see that happen and to see yourself making a difference. And I remember being struck the day Francesca was born, which can you believe it is 19 years ago now, that they don't come with the manual. And even if there aren't any traumas or complications to deal with, you still look at this tiny, beautiful little bundle and kind of wonder what to do. I mean, it's all very different, I think, second time round, but it always staggers me that you're suddenly a mum or a parent and you're kind of off on your own, which is, I'm guessing, where your first book comes in. Absolutely. I always say, look, I don't deal
1: in opinion. We can all have opinions on parenting and everything. What I like to do with my brain and sort of the journalism is I want the science. I want to understand the facts. And I think that actually most parents, you know, we can get absolutely deluged with, do this, do that, don't do this. And it it can become, especially with your first child, as you say, when we're all just in the dark. So what I really wanted to do is when I understood how brain development really does shape behavior and also is what we depend on later in life for good future mental health, so i.e. it's vital, I thought, well, if every parent can understand the brain and how it develops in different stages and how that influences our children's behavior. They can then tap into those beautiful ancient wisdoms that we all have and that our ancestors have passed down across many, many, many generations and hundreds of thousands of years. We do have them. It's kind of been knocked sideways because we live in quite a different environment now where we're all a bit more frenetic and everything. But actually what I found is, and thankfully with the book being as well received as it has. I've got parents who say, oh, I now get it. So actually a toddler tantrum isn't them being naughty. It's an emotional overwhelm. It's the stress response. And now I can respond really calmly and compassionately and say, hey, how can I help? As opposed to stop, you know, or feeling embarrassed or the shame that we all feel if our child's sort of like prostate in the in the supermarket, kicking and screaming, oh, I want this. To, so to be able to turn that, big overwhelm around in seconds, which is what we can all do. And that's what the book does, is explains how we can do that. And parents go, everything's changed overnight. you like, yeah. So that was my experience of my children's behaviour. So the book itself is extremely bedded in science and neuroscience, but I just wanted to make it simple for time poor, <laughs> tired, pressed parents to say, let's just look at it and it's taking great liberty with neuroscience for all the neuroscientists listening and I speak to Dr. Bruce Perry and people regularly about this because it's a bit of a pain that I've come in and, and other people as well sort of come in and say, right, okay, so we just got to think about a lizard, a baboon and a wise owl, <laughs> but it really does. It is obviously the brain is entirely compressed with trillions of moving parts, but actually I just wanted parents to be able to understand and for children to understand there are kind of a few main drivers of behaviour. And once we understand those, everything else starts to fall in place. And if it makes people then go off and read the science and look at the amygdala and the cerebellum and the brainstem and the nervous system and understand it a bit better, fantastic. But until then, I just wanted to create a metaphor of this baobab tree based on my time and travel spent in Zimbabwe because it's known as the tree of wisdom. And the baobab tree represents our brain and the roots of the tree represent our nervous system. And then you've got these three animals living living in the tree, and each of them drive, are responsible for driving sort of different parts of our behaviour. And in essence, you've got what I call the wise owl sitting up, which is our prefrontal cortex, and she is responsible for emotional regulation. So she is the root of sort of mental health in a way, because when our children and we are feeling overwhelmed and stressed and scared, tired, ill, or whatever it might be, the lizard and the baboon are the ones who are kind of getting fizzy and bounding around. And what we need is this beautiful wise owl to kind of swoop down in the tree and hug them in the warmth of her feathered wings and sort of, hey, it's okay. We're all okay. We're coming back to balance. And that is what we generally do when we've got good mental health is that we can soothe ourselves. It's not that I don't get stressed or I don't worry about things happening, but I've got a highly developed wise owl who can sort of say to me, It's okay. Let's take the example of the second book deadline. It's stressing me to the hilt, but I can keep bringing myself back in and go, do you know what, take a walk this morning. Let's just take a walk, chill out, go and speak to Helen in a little bit. That'll be lovely connecting and you'll get the book, the last chapter written later. I can do that because I've got a wise owl, but our children have what I term is the equivalent as a little fluffy owlet. It's still developing. Our wise owl, the prefrontal cortex, doesn't fully finish its development until we're in our twenties, particularly for men, sort of nudging towards 30. So if you put our children, our young children in that context, even your 19 year old, We'll still be having a brain that is developing and sort of plastic as we call it and still learning. So let's not judge either each other as adults, because all our brains have the ability to change and we're all working in our best way. But particularly for children, it's why I say there's no such thing as naughty, because they're really not as able as adults to emotionally regulate. They still need us to help them with that, not punish them in the process when they get things wrong. So that's why I'm so passionate, because if we keep punishing children for making mistakes, which let's face it, we all make mistakes as adults, then we're really not helping that lovely wise owl to develop in the way that we want it to. It's just going to end up in a place of shame and blame. And that's not where any of us want to be.
0: It's wonderful that it's got a much higher profile now. And that's thanks to the work you do. Also, thanks to the work the Princess of Wales does with her early years work, which is described as her life's work. And You've been supporting her, and you know I saw you on Lorraine recently talking about it all. You seem very much on the same page. How much pleasure do you get from being part of that campaign and And are you indeed on the same page? Oh, we are. It's wonderful what Her Royal Highness is doing because it's shining
1: this very much needed spotlight. She's very much looking at the early years at the moment, but again, in agreement that we need to help all parents to come together to feel supported. So it doesn't just stop at three. And she's passionate about the science as well, which is wonderful. So we work and are informed by, I mean, amazing people. I fangirl them all the time. Professor Peter Fonagy is one of my <laughs> my big crushes. And he and I work very closely together on a great number of things. You know, He was across my first book and I basically would send him the chapters when it was all finished just to say, just tell me that I haven't got this wrong. And people like Eamon McCrory, Professor McCrory, whom I'm also working with, and Margot Sunderland, I and mean, I can name them all. There's really incredible people that have been working in this field for all their lives. And so what Her Royal Highness is doing is actually shining a light on their work. And she's as passionate as I am about learning from them. So when I do see her at events and I hosted the launch of Shaping Us event, And it is lovely because you've got that immediate connection and feedback, whether she's read the book and things like that. You know, it's, it's a lovely connection to have. And I'm so supportive of that campaign and support it in any which way that I'm able.
0: When you were talking about the lizard on Instagram the other day, it was Mental Health Awareness Week and you were out walking and I thought then I wrote that down because I thought I love the way you describe, you have all these names and images for different parts of our brain, I think the lizard is the nervous system and the primitive brain, but all of this brain knowledge can help us as adults with our mental health with managing stress what are the takeaways for us because it isn't just children I mean obviously you're focused on children but your way of looking at the brain and describing it to laymen if you like non-scientific minds like mine I feel we all could take a lot away from that.
1: Yes, I'm really pleased you've said that because if I had it in me, I'd do an adult book. <laughs> so I was speaking to my sister and she said, oh, I've learned so much from you because you do explain it in this very, uh, my brain works very visually. And when we're busy, you know, who's got time to sit down as I do at 3am and read some sort of big academic paper when the words are sort of a meter long. So it was really crucial and it burnt my brain to try and me- distill it down into this very simple metaphor. But, and again, that's why I've always came back to Peter Fonagy, you know, can I put it in this way? And actually you can. It, It is a very simplified version, obviously, but I think it does really help for people to think, so I've got this really ancient part of my brain. It's been around effectively for hundreds of millions of years. Its only job is my survival. And so if I'm feeling anxious, anxiety, it's normal, basically. It's our brain's way of saying, I'm not really happy with my environment right now. And because this part of our brain it hasn't evolved to distinguish between physical threat and emotional threat. So a threat for us over a book deadline, right, looming, compared with a snarling dog that's going to come at me through my garden office will be dealt with one and the same. They create the same level of anxiety. So when we understand that, okay, that's just my brain doing its thing. So if I'm feeling anxious, it's not a problem. I just need to have that In a conversation with myself. And that's why I think it helps to sort of think of this little lizard, skittish lizard, and he hears a noise and he's off and he's either going to be fight, flight, freeze, or flop, which is just literally for some of us, it's like, I can't go on. I've just got to go to bed and stay there for a day. Actually, that's all coming from that part of your brain. So, in answer to your question, when we know that, we can start making friends with our nervous system and this ancient part of our brain, not seeing it as a problem and thinking, oh Lordy, I've got a bit of an issue. Why do my hands feel a bit fizzy? Why do I keep tapping my feet? These are all signs that our stress response is just a little bit fizzy. So we can start doing very simple things. Well, nostril breathing is great. So I don't know whether you knew this. So we have a nervous system. The autonomic nervous system, largely made up of these two parts, but it's a bit more complicated, but let's just go with that for the moment. Parasympathetic nervous system and the sympathetic nervous system. Your sympathetic nervous system is the bit that is the fight-flight. I describe it as a skydiver, so S for sympathetic, a skydiver. You're standing up about to leap out of the plane and your heart's going and your palms are sweaty and you're feeling anxious. Well, that's what happens when we're feeling anxious, whether it's the snarling dog or the book deadline, we can feel those symptoms. So we recognize that's my sympathetic nervous system. What I now need to do is jump out of the plane and I'm <laughs> I, because I know I'm going to enter. I can know that I'm going to get this book finished, right? So I'm going to jump out the plane. I'm going to take on the challenge, but I'm going to do that because I can pull the ripcord and my parachute, or the parasympathetic nervous system, see what I did Very there? good. I saw what Obviously, you did there, exactly. I but... always get them confused, um, so actually. P and P, I'm like parasympathetic, parachute. So you pull the parachute, and that is the part of your nervous system that brings you back to calm. And that's what sees the release of anti-anxiety chemicals released to counterbalance that fight-flight. So going back to the nose and the nostril breathing is that apparently our nose is representative of our nervous system. So the right nostril is the sympathetic, the fight flight, and your left is the parasympathetic, the relaxed, what they call sort of rest and digest state. So if we breathe in, if we hold with one finger, and I'm doing it as I speak. I'm doing it And you're doing it now. I'll I'll move away from the microphone. We hold the the left nostril and we're just going to take a nice deep breath in through the right nostril. And you can hold it there for four seconds or in the interest of keeping everybody on this podcast, we can let that one go out of the left. Now, that just is a nice stimulation of the sympathetic. So if you're after a meal, if you want to help your digestion or whatever, that's a good one. But if you do, and I don't know whether you'll see it this quickly, but normally it works. If you then hold your right nostril and breathe in. That's the parasympathetic. I don't know whether you felt the difference there. It might take a little bit of time for anybody, but just if you do that a few times, holding it for four seconds, releasing it for four seconds, just taking your time, but up through the left nostril and out through the right, And yoga, I mean, our ancestors were onto something, yogis and and what have you, because they knew how crucial the body is for bringing ourselves back to balance. And there's lots of lovely exercises. There's a brilliant book called Breath, which is out at the moment, which is brilliant. It covers a lot of this. And there's lots of ways of using our breath to bring our nervous system and something called the vagus nerve back to balance. It's quick, it's free, and you carry it everywhere with you. So when we start understanding the power of the breath, the power of our sleep and all these natural things, I think it empowers us to take charge of our mental health. Yes, it's really important to talk to people and seek help if you're really finding life a challenge. Being in the presence of an emotionally available other. So you and I going offline now, if you were to sort of say to me, actually, do you know what? I've been really struggling with this and and being really honest and me just hearing you not trying to solve, not being a therapist in that moment. I don't have to be a therapist to be therapeutic. Hearing you and saying, gosh,
0: that sounds tough. That sounds really, really tough. I think getting back to understanding our breath and also realizing that as I've discovered over the last year or two, that sleep is actually the elixir of life as my Health guru would describe it, but I find Kate and I include me in this as well. That stress for many of us has become a way of life. We're we're juggling careers, children, the pressures of the cost of living crisis, high inflation. We're bombarded all the time. Our minds are bombarded by social media. I would imagine having stress as a norm is really toxic and damaging. And we need to understand the sympathetic and the parasympathetic nervous system, and how we can take a little bit of time out in the day to rectify that. And I've been practicing a few things. I'm not very good at meditation or anything, but trying to build in a bit of breath work into my life. And I've just bought the book you've just mentioned, actually, Breathe. It's brilliant. It will change your life. And actually, the other top tip from that that I got
1: was mouth taping. So oh, haven't, haven't heard about mouth
0: taping. What do you do with mouth taping other
1: than tape your mouth? I'll reference it because it's not my research. I, I don't normally quote things unless I've done my research on it, but he's a journalist. The book is great and everything in it has completely made sense and been researched, everything else. And the mouth taping is because we're breathing through our mouths. As Western society, we're evolving because we're not chewing as much. I mean, you can read the book and it explains it in great detail, but essentially we end up breathing through our mouths at night And it's totally bad for our health. And in fact, he's even got research which relates it to ADHD. And I have to say, with my children now, we've all been mouth taping and my son, who's can be quite skittish. He asks for this. It's only like a little bit of tape. I mean, it sounds bizarre when you first, until you actually read the book, it's like, really, what? But you're it's you're not using gaffer tiny, tape just for, yeah, exactly, <laughs> just in like, case anybody's wondering. She's <laughs> torturing her kids. <laughs> so I tried it and then my son, we tried it and he absolutely loves it. And we've all been sleeping so much better. It's another podcast in itself to explain it in its entirety. You'll probably have to get him on, but it was a revelation Even the sleep for all of us as a family, the kids absolutely, where's my tape, mummy? It sounds bizarre until you've read it. So please don't think that I've come up with some quirky way to keep my kids silent at night. It just is encourages them to breathe through their noses. And I have to say, it's been a revelation.
0: I'll have a go with that. I'll have a read and then I'll have a go with it. But your kids are so gorgeous. I remember just on a personal note being in the audience, which is very rare for me to be in the audience of an awards event. But I was and you were hosting and I met you in the toilets and you just had your daughter and it was the first time you would left her as a baby and you had that kind of mummy, not wobble, but oh my goodness, do you think she'll be okay? I was like, Kate, I think she'll be fast asleep. And do they get a bit overanalyzed in your world, Kate? <laughs> what do they yeah, think quite, to what
1: you're up I'm to? I'm quite careful with the training. We are very, as much as I'm obviously sharing quite a lot with you today, I don't sit in this floaty caftan space. <laughs> I was only <totally laughs> joking, wrong with really. floaty caftans, <laughs> by the way. But, you know, I'm very mindful. Because you have to be, because actually, you know, when my friends call or my sisters, you know, and you want to chat, I put my friend sister hat on. And all that means is I'm listening and I'm listening. And and that is therapeutic. And actually, even as a therapist, we don't try to solve. We actually help people to reflect. And I work very differently with children. So I am really mindful. With my children, it's hilarious. I have worked really hard without them knowing on helping them with emotional regulation. And especially Clemency, now she's getting older, we talk about projections. So if I've had a bad day, very often in therapy speak, we will talk about projecting it out. Because people always say to me, Oh, well, my child's described as an angel at school, but then they come home and they're a complete horror and they're like breaking down and shouting. And I smile and I say, that's a really good sign. And they go, what do you mean it's a really good sign? I mean, am I a really bad parent? Am I the one? You know? And I say, no, 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 it's quite the opposite. Because don't we all put on our best behaviour when we're not able to express ourselves, when we're not able to have the tantrum, whether we're adults or toddlers, if we can't like, oh, this is really awful, or I've had a fallout with a friend, who do we come home and take it out on? It's the nearest and dearest. And why? Because they are our safe space. We know they're not going to run a mile. We know they're going to listen, hopefully. And we know that we're in our safe place of our home. So when children bring their stuff home, it's because they've been holding it in all day. And here is where they feel safe enough to release it. And the same goes for adults. So we might find ourselves coming home and if we've had a bad day at work and the boss has said something untoward and we come home and we might snap that the dinner's not ready because our husband's on dinner, or we know whatever it might be, and that's projection. So what we're doing is we feel a bit pants inside and instead of talking about that, we just throw it out. So if Clemency's had a bad day and she'll get in the car, and I know something's up because she normally greets me with a smile, but she might get in the car and, she, you know, it's this sort of face. And it can feel quite personal if you've been waiting outside the school gate and you've rushed to pick your kid up and you're like, geez, you know, like I've, you know, I've been really looking forward to seeing you. So you have to swallow that. And in my head, I'm thinking, okay, well, something's obviously happened. So then I can say, oh, sweetheart, you look really quite cross. Is everything okay? We have something called a code red. So if the children don't want to speak at that moment, was it a code red? And they go, "Yeah." Okay, do you want to talk about it now or later? Sometimes it's normally later, mostly at bedtime. I think most parents will find this. It's either in the car or at bedtime. And so then you give each other an opportunity to either offload. She might then snap at Wilbur. And then I would just reflect and say, sweetheart, are you really that cross with him because he took the seat behind me (laughs) and (laughs) not the other seat? Or is a little bit of projection going on? And I always say it with a smile and then know. The reason why I mention it is because yesterday I've been solo parenting for weeks and weeks because my husband's been traveling so I was literally on my knees they weren't listening at bedtime and I snapped and I was like can you just please just listen this is really disrespectful I'm listening to myself going god I sound like my mother you know this is really disrespectful come on now you know you've got to get to bed I'm thinking oh, I really wanted a nice quiet bedtime with and here I am being the fun sponge anyway she called me out and she said "Mummy, do you think you're because I told them that the book deadline is on my case and, and she said "Mummy, do you think you're projecting a little bit <laughs>
0: <laughs> I don't to nice you one, too nice well, one so, yes yeah, so I'm like
1: yeah that's probably right I am really just tired and stressed about the book and it's not about you guys and let's come and have a fun bedtime
0: that's so nice I like the word fun sponge that's a that's a yeah, good phrase does you some great fun sponge, phrases but I,
1: I do try to work with them but not to be this annoying woman who's got her therapy hat on the whole I was time. saying, that saying be that too was much in cheek
0: I know, you, I, know you no, no, you, I know you definitely wouldn't do that I know the kind of clues in the title Kate but complex case therapist. I would imagine sometimes you're dealing with some heartbreaking situations, and I just wondered how you cope and how you manage not to absorb all the emotion and take it forward in your life. Do you have coping mechanisms when you're involved in? I would imagine sometimes some some sad cases. Mm.
1: yes, it is. Part of the training is to recognize, and also part of the training is to ensure that we are supported. So I still have, even though my sort of personal therapy journey is complete but actually I still have therapy to go and offload because there will be things that are triggering and deeply distressing and very sad. I'm working sort of at the more acute end as you... I mean, I work with other children who are less complex, you know, and might need a bit of support with just school in generally, but I'm working with some complexities and I'm always mindful of confidentiality. So I have to be really careful, but just, yes, in terms of self-care, there is something I have to be mindful of because I trust the process of healing, that that is what spurs me on. Being able to sit with your own pain and overcome and work through and heal gives you that sense of confidence or or sort of that inner sense of it is painful and it can be really painful for the child to sit with things, but I've seen what it's like for them on the other side. That's what really keeps me going in a way that I know it's really important to do that work. And sometimes your children will say to me, why are you making me do this? And you kind of go, this is the work. And it's really brave to be doing this work. I don't make them any promises, but I just confirm that what they're doing is really brave and that I'm there to keep them safe. And even sometimes at the end of a very deep session, they'll look at me and say, I think I just need to dance. And we'll go, yeah, let's just, you know, and so you see these petals being taken off and gently taken away and taken away until you get to the beauty of what's within. And it can happen a lot quicker with children. So I see the beauty of the therapeutic process a lot, thankfully, with my clients. And so that's, and I see it with the feedback from the parents and teachers around me as well. And that's what spurs me on. So yes, it is sad work. My job is to hold a child's pain and help them to what I call exorcise it in the nicest possible way and to let it go, to be able to let it go and to heal. And that is what
0: happens in in therapy. I can really see, Kate, talking to you that this really is your life's calling. I just wonder if you miss any of the broadcasting world. I mean, I know you still host and you still do interviews, but you're not on our screens on BBC One every night giving us the news. Mm. You did, as we mentioned in the opening, you went to War Zones, you've done gritty documentaries, you've done all sorts of things. Do you miss that at all or do you feel 100% fulfilled in this relatively new world? It's only been a few years, hasn't it?
1: no. Is the mm, is the short done. answer? No, I, I don't I don't miss it. I've always been the big believer in leaving the party while the going's good, and so I think I've loved my career, and I've soaked everything up and given it everything. And because i would just been on this path of being, you know, moving in this different direction, so there was never really any doubt. And because it has been so fulfilling, and I do feel very much in my space now, as you say. I look back and it's lovely to reflect and review and think, gosh, yeah, I did do that and I've got the BBC to thank for my husband because that's how I met him when I was going off to Iraq and I can celebrate it all, but I don't miss that. I just see it as this is the second act, so I'm not going to reflect back on the first act and think I should be doing the first act because you'd just be doing the same thing over and over. So this part of my life is opening up and I just look forward really, but it also appreciating where I've been. And that's given me this lovely foundation to be able to talk about children's mental health now. And actually that's why I did Strictly. I thought if I can do something that's higher profile, that it enables me to talk about children's mental health in a way that I probably wouldn't have been able to do if I just maybe stayed in you. So there's always been a bit of a method in terms of what I've been doing. And I, yeah, I just put one foot in front of the other. And if I don't enjoy things, then I would change. But I'm where I'm at now and I'm loving it.
0: We're so similar. I haven't used the phrase second act, but I think that's where I am actually after 30 years of broadcasting, really loving doing just for one aspect of my work now, the podcast and actually doing things where it's audio only and you don't have to worry about what you look like (laughs) and just get on with it and do it yourself and tell some really, really interesting stories. Just end because I'm very mindful of the clock and I need you to get writing again. Just end with how the BBC was actually responsible for you ending up marrying Mike, because he took you hostage and gagged and bound you, didn't he? (laughs) Basically. Yeah. (laughs) I know. Yeah,
1: I do joke. I've got Stockholm syndrome. So my husband is a former Royal Marines commando. And I was going to Iraq, I was very excited. I begged my bosses to go. I'd really wanted, Kate Adie was always a heroine of mine. And whenever I do things, I want to do it really well. And And I thought, well, I really want to go and cover the conflict from the ground. I don't just want to sit in the studio. So you have to do something called a hostile environments course. Have you ever done one of those?
0: I actually haven't done one of those because in all those years in news, I never went to a war zone. So I haven't done that. It's the only thing I really didn't do. I mean, covered September the 11th and terrorist atrocities, et cetera. I don't think, to be honest, Kate, I had the courage to go to anywhere like Afghanistan or Iraq. Well, it's clearly not for everyone. And you do have
1: to have this training beforehand that... If you do, and the threat was very real. And each time I was right out in among the fighting. So you have to do this course where if you got taken hostage, what do you do? And so when I walked in, I saw this rather handsome action man lookalike with his arms folded, you know. <laughs> and of course, I spent the first few days trying to impress him, and he completely. <laughs> completely just took the mic out of me the whole time. And I was getting everything wrong and talking too much with funny old thing, as you can hear on this podcast, (laughs) (laughs) uh, you know, doing all these, he's like, you've got to be the gray person. He said, you'd get shot in an instant because you just talk too much. And I was like, Oh God, (laughs) I mean, it's deeply embarrassing, but there was a bit of a twinkle between us and it took some months before he then actually asked me out. And we've pretty much been together ever since he's my soulmate i adore him we are a really good team and yeah i've thanked my lucky stars that i was 35 and i met him and i had almost given up hope of finding the one and i had lots of lovely lovely boyfriends but i just hadn't felt that i'd found the one and he is my one so i consider myself very lucky so yeah
0: well, I'm going to let you get on with your writing, Kate. Otherwise, we're both going to have your publisher breathing down both of our necks. <laughs> it is so good to chat to you. When you come up for air, I hope we'll go for a glass of wine and a, just a proper social catch up. But thank I'd you. love that. Thank, thank you so you. much for breaking off to do the podcast. And just tell us when the new book's out. I'm not sure whether you're able to share a title yet, but when can we expect to see that on our shelves as hopefully another bestseller?
1: Oh, Thank you. So the book is called There's Still No Such Thing as Naughty, and this is for parents with children from five to 11. So yes, I know, uh, even when your son at six is swinging his pants over his head and refusing to go to bed, not naughty. I'll explain why in the book. The book should be out, should, she says, given it's not quite yet in. It should be out in, I would say we're looking at September. Now my publisher's going to go August, August, but I think probably where we're at is going to be around September of this year. And I will be talking and I, I hope it's of help to
0: parents and children everywhere. That's what keeps me writing. (laughs) I'm sure it will be. And you've given us a lot of help today, actually. And I'm going off to find some sellotape and also to do my (laughs) one nostril breathing. But honestly, it's been a pleasure, Kate. Love you to bits. Thank you so much for doing this. Well, thank you for the opportunity. You're a lovely listener. I feel like I've just, uh, because I have to stop
1: myself from asking you questions, you know, going into that And what do you think about this? And I have to really be mindful of just so anyway. But it has been lovely. But maybe we can get that glass of wine. Then I can
0: sit and have a proper natter. We will. We'll do that when you come up for air. You have been listening to Kate Silverton talking about her life and work as a complex case therapist, a child therapist, under pressure in her garden office to get her next book finished on deadline, as well as busy solo parenting at the moment because her husband's away and basically coping with life. Don't forget to download and subscribe to our series at convex.podbean.com or search The Convex Conversation on Spotify, Apple and Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to yours. Join me next week when I'll bring you another inspiring guest. Bye for now.